Hello, everybody. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to another edition of the Age of Infinite. Throughout history, humans have made significant transformational changes in which in turn have led to the renaming of periods into what we call ages. And you have just lived through an amazing experience of this information age. It's been an amazing ride. Now consider that you might now be living through another transformational age, the age of infinite. An age that is not defined by scarcity and abundance by a redefining lifestyle consisting of infinite possibilities and infinite resources. The ingredients for an amazing sci-fi story that has come to life as together we create a new definition of the future. Now our podcast is brought to you by the Project Moonhot Foundation. We were looking to establish a box with a roof and a door on the moon, a moon hut, H-U-T. We were actually named by NASA, Project Moon Hut, through the accelerated development of an earth and space-based ecosystem, then to use the endeavors, the paradigm-shifting thinking, and the innovations, and to turn them back on earth to improve how we live on earth for all species. Today, we're going to be exploring another amazing topic. We've had so many amazing guests on this series. The topic is the complex puzzles of life science experimentations in space and their impacts. And today we have with us Stephanie Countryman. How are you, Stephanie? I'm good. Thanks, David. Well, fantastic to have you. Stephanie is the director of BioServe Space Technologies and a research associate at the Anne and H.J. Smed Aerospace Engineering and Science Department of the University of Colorado in Boulder. How, we, how I met Stephanie was I had been looking for a life science individual and I'd reached out and several people felt they were not as qualified. And the name that came back was this individual who we have today, Stephanie. And they said that this is the individual that should be on the program. So it took several series. Many guests take multiple steps to get there. Stephanie is one of them. And so I personally am very excited to learn today. So Stephanie, you have an outline for me today, I'm assuming. I do. Okay. How many points do we have just so I know in advance? I have four bullet points. Okay. What's number one? There is no such thing as a simple space life science experiment. Experiment. Okay. Next. Making an unnatural environment natural. Next. The art of achieving a successful space life science experiment. Science experiment. And next. And the broad impacts of these experiments. Of these experiments. Fantastic. So let's start with the first one. There's no such thing as a simple space life science experiment. All right. Well, I wanted to start with this because, um, you know, David, we work with a lot of um, scientists to support their experiments on space station. And typically we start out with a conversation on the phone talking about what type of experiment they're wanting to focus on and how they conduct it in their lab. And if I had a dollar for every time someone said to me, well, it's really a simple experiment because all we have to do is just do this. And we always stop them right there and say, okay, the first thing we're gonna to have to do in this process is cross out the word just from your vocabulary <laughs> and never say that ever again. Because there's one thing I found in this business is that just 
there's nothing just about trying to translate a space life, space life science experiment or a life science experiment into a space flight one. So, so, so before you go, I'm sorry to cut you off very quickly. I didn't realize that you were a, you didn't come up with the experiments and the way you just said it, you are a, an organization that they come to you and say, or you go to them. I'm not sure you can explain. You go to them or they go to you, come to you and you say, they say, I would like to do X. And then you help to convert, transform, make it happen. Is that that is correct. We actually do both. So we actually have um, in-house science um, expertise and we do some of our own science experiments, some of which I probably talk a little bit about today, but we also support external researchers as well to um, support their science experiments. So we do both. Okay. So we do, we have expertise on the science side and we have expertise on the, the translation side, how to translate that science into a spaceflight experiment. And then we have expertise on the hardware side, which is how do we make the hardware that will hold that experiment as we launch it to the space station? Okay, I, I, yeah, I never even thought about it in that way. So that's interesting. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, um, so in order to understand this process, I think the first thing you have to do is think about you know, what a life science lab looks like on the ground. Mm -hmm. So when we think about a life science lab on the ground, um, you know, it can support lots of different types of life sciences. And so, as you know, when we're talking about life sciences, we're talking about, you know, mammalian cell culture, uh, small organism research, which could be fruit flies or spiders. Um, we're talking about looking at different types of bacteria, um, you know, anything that's essentially a living organism. So if you think about that life science lab, um, what's in there? Well, let's talk about all the equipment. There's incubators to keep things temperature controlled and alive. There's gas inside that incubator. If you're doing mammalian cell culture, there's 5% CO2. There's freezers and refrigerators so that you can um, keep all of your reagents um, in a state so that when you want to use them, they um, are uh, healthy and working the way that you think they should. All the nutrients haven't gone bad. You also have refrigerators and freezers so that when you're done doing your experiments that you can um, freeze or refrigerate them so you can do your later analysis. There's micro, um, microscopes, cameras, biosafety cabinets for doing sterile work. Um, and then you just have the equipment. You have Petri dishes or multi-well plates or maybe some type of um, a container that is gas permeable. Uh, maybe has a lid that you can keep loose on it so that you can grow all of your um, cultures or your organisms that you're studying. So think about that lab. Now you have to think about all of those pieces of equipment are pieces of equipment that we need up on the space station. But uh, so, so just one clarity, <clears throat> my mind, unfortunately, even though I have a degree in biology, my mind immediately went to chemistry lab. Mm -hmm. Uh, if, because I think that's probably a more visible image that we see more often, uh, -huh. uh how different is it from a chemistry lab as to a biology lab, life sciences lab? Well, I, I think there, there, there's, um, there's a lot of similarities in chemistry labs. You have, um, you know, your, your, 
you're pouring and you're pipetting and you're mixing and you have heater plates and stir plates and um, you have fume hoods to, if you're working with caustic chemicals. So they're, they're very similar with regards to the different types of equipment. There may be some specific equipments that are for a chemistry lab that you may not see in a um, cell culture lab. And the same thing, like in a cell culture or life science lab, you, you'll have like the biosafety cabinet which is really a, a cabinet designed so that you can work with infectious organisms in a mm -hmm. sterile environment. You typically wouldn't have that in a chemistry lab, but you'd have a fume hood that is pulling, um, you know, you're working in the fume hood and that fume hood is pulling any um, toxic fumes out and away from you. Okay. So, um, so, so they're very similar. Okay. I just for my imagery sake, I wanted to make sure because I know there's differences when you have a living organism as compared to not. It's I was just trying to, you had different types of freezers, you have pre and post freezers. So I wanted some clarity. So thank you. Okay. Yeah. So now, so now think about needing all of that equipment to do an experiment on the space station, right? So except the space station has rules and guidelines that we have to follow and necessarily so, so that we can keep the crew safe, we can keep the vehicle safe, that we don't adversely affect the ECLIS system, which is the environmental control and life support system of the station, because all of that is operating in a, in a, in a nice balance to keep um, the crew alive and to keep the station healthy and operating as it should. So now you take that equipment and you, let's just take an incubator for example. An incubator on the ground is, you know, about three feet tall and three feet wide and three feet in depth. So it's about three cubic feet. Well, there's not a lot of space on the space station. Think about now miniaturizing that to about a foot and a half by a foot and a half. So all of the equipment that you would need in a life sciences lab now has to be modified to not only um, be miniaturized, but also to uh, be uh, safe to operate on the station and also um, be built so that it operates continuously with very little um, support technically. So if it breaks down, there's not a whole lot you can do on station. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, the, the, <laughs> you're creating a better refrigerator. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But you're trying to do it and it's a difficult um, environment really because of um, not only the miniaturization but then all of the safety guidelines that we have to follow. Um, so when um, you're building something that's powered on the station, there's all kinds of um, uh, things that we have to do in order to get that approved to launch to the space station and, and operate it on the space station. And that includes things like um, electromagnetic uh, interference testing. So you wanna make sure that when we plug that into the station, we now don't interfere with everything else operating on the station, nor does everything operating on the station interfere with that piece of equipment. So these are just some of the things in terms of the large pieces of equipment um, that we have to think about and have to have available on the station in order to operate it like it's a life science or chemistry lab. So is, are you using, uh, are, is there shared equipment? 
so that you, you say, look, I want to do this. And they say, yeah, hey, we've got this one by 1.5 by 1.5 by 1.5 cube refrigerator in, or do you have to have everything that you're doing for your experiment go up for that experiment? That's a, that's a good question. So it's actually a little bit of both. So let's take the biosafety cabinet, for example, that you would have in the lab to protect yourself if you're working with infectious organisms. So on the space station, we have what's called the life sciences glove box. And that's actually a facility that was built by NASA and is offered by NASA. So that's a shared facility. So if we are launching an experiment that wants to do, and we'll get to it, some fluid exchanges where we're breaking levels of containment, which I'll talk about in a minute, then um, we do that inside of the life sciences glove box. And it's exactly, um, the glove box portion is exactly what it sounds like. The crew, in order to protect the crew, this glove box is exactly that. They put their hands into gloves and now they operate the experiment inside of this sealed box so that um, you know, they're protected from any um, organism that you may be uh, studying. And also it protects the vehicle from any fluids that may, um, you know, um, be- It's like the movie, it's like the movies. Mm-hmm. When you see when there's an Ebola breakout or COVID breakout, yeah. there are people are exactly. working on it. Now, this is probably yeah. a question you you may or may never have been asked. Mm-hmm. In space, how do you clean it? Uh, see, now that's a great question as well because typically in a life sciences lab, you just uh, you know get your ethanol bottle yeah. and you just spray, 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 or your isopropyl spray, 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 and then you just wipe it down. Well, in space on the, on the ISS, the um, environmental control and life support system can only handle a small amount of um, alcohols. So ethanol, isopropyl, there's only a very small amount of that that can be um, released into the atmosphere in order for that um, system to scrub it. So we're not allowed to use any of that. So we have to find alternatives. And this is part of the whole puzzle of trying to figure out how to conduct these experiments Um, in a manner that is as close as possible to the way we would do it on the ground. So we have found things, different types of biocide wipes or other types of sterilization wipes that now are compatible with the science, but allow us to clean that space. So one, we clean the space by having these biocide wipes, which the crew puts inside the glove box, then opens them up, and now they wipe everything down. But the Life Sciences Glove Box also has a UV light light system, just like you would in a biosafety cabinet. There's a UV light system that you turn on after you use it and you leave it on for X period of time. And the longer you leave it on, the more um, variety of organisms it would potentially kill. So before we use the Life Sciences Glove Box, they always run that UV light for about three hours. And then once um, we're getting ready to start an experiment inside that glove box, the crew then uses those biocide wipes and wipes everything down so that we can try to keep everything as sterile as possible, even though technically it's not a sterile environment. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes makes tons of sense because I'm thinking you go with a spray bottle and and it's yep. floating all over the place. And exactly. that's, that's not an easy thing to clean. And I'm assuming that many of the astronauts are not skilled in as their expertise, life sciences. So mm-hmm. you're more or less giving them instructions as to what has to be done to make sure that your experiment goes as planned. Yes, and that's exactly right. And a little bit later, I was gonna talk a little bit about that crew training and, and 
and think about it in a life sciences lab, you know, the people that work in there are typically trained. Now you have an experiment that you want to conduct that you spent the last two years of your life designing and you find somebody on the street. Maybe it's not quite that bad, but you mm-hmm. find somebody in your building and you say, hey, come here, I want you to do this experiment for me. You yes. know, so now you're putting that in the hands of somebody else. So it's definitely, um, you know, there is a, an art to conducting these experiments successfully. And then if later you can also go over the transfer of knowledge as to how it's been, how you, the education of the astronauts, because I'm assuming yeah. there's an educational yes. part so that they know what they're supposed to do and they do it on time and yeah. they do it the way it's expected. Okay. Yeah, there absolutely is. So, yep. So if you get an idea about the equipment that's needed, then I just want to talk about uh, quickly about the, um, you know, the smaller pieces of equipment needed to let's, let's just give an example uh, of a, um, a cell culture experiment. So again, we're talking to our scientists and they'll say, okay, well, I just want to launch this 12 well plate. I'll load it with my cell cultures and the media. We'll launch it to station. And then all we have to do is a media exchange on it and then stick it in the freezer. Well, I don't know if you know what a 12 well plate looks like, but it's essentially uh, um, something that's about the size of a cell phone. And it has uh, you know 12 round circular hole, uh, wells in it that hold about you know three milliliters of liquid. And then it has a lid that sits on top of it, but the lid just sits there, it's not sealed. Um, it's not, it, it can come on and off very easily. And that allows for gas exchange to occur into those cell cultures. So well, it's, it's like, uh, the best way to, th- I would say is uh, because I, I seen these, it's like an ice cube tray that are tiny little wells that you'd put in something else into. So it's like a small ice cube tray. Is that a good way to yeah. analogize it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then just think about, you know, setting on something on top of setting on something on top of that ice cube tray, just so you don't have, you know, stuff falling into your wells. Mm -hmm. So, and then, and then that goes into an incubator, but in space, you know, think about, uh, uh, um, well, first of all, for a space station, we have what's called levels of containment. So NASA, depending upon what organism you're flying, you have to have levels of containment. Well, liquids always have to be in one level of containment right? Because if you get to space and you don't have your liquids contained um, and you don't have a small enough well for good surface tension, your liquids are just going to start floating away, right? Yep. There's no, there's- yeah, that's, no, that's, what, that's even putting a lid on something has to be snapped down. Yeah, exactly. And think about the launch effects now. If you just put that, you know, ice cube tray, that 12 well ice cube tray with a, you know, just a lid on top of it and you fill it with water and you launch it on a rocket, um, you know, you can imagine what you'll have when you get to station. So, yep. you know, so now what you have to do is um, figure out how to contain a cell culture experiment completely. So you have it in a completely sealed environment, but you still have to have appropriate gas exchange because those um, cells are living, they're alive, they have to breathe. And so part of what we do is designing the hardware that can support that cell culture experiment and support it as close to how it's supported on the ground in terms of how the cells function. Um, Because we don't want, when we fly an experiment in space, we don't want the effects that a scientist may seem to be a result of the hardware. We don't want it to be a result 
of the cells having to now live in a sealed container when that's not the way that they normally would do the cell culture on the ground. We want whatever result they see to be a result of those cells um, being in microgravity and being exposed to microgravity. So, so we design the sealed container. And then what happens is once we get to space, now we ourselves, and I don't think I ever finished answering your question, BioServe actually has our own incubator facilities. So the question of, is it NASA or is it each organization's own facilities? It's both. So NASA has some facilities that we use, but then we have our own facilities and we have a smart incubator on station that we communicate to from the ground, from our payload operations and command center. And that provides appropriate temperature control for um, any type of life science experiment for the most part. It, it can um, hold things at minus five Celsius all the way up to 43 Celsius. But for cell culture, we would now put this cell culture that's sealed and it actually, if it's human cells, has to be in two levels of containment. So now it's in a sealed culture plate. And then that culture plate is, goes into another box that's sealed, but the whole thing allows for appropriate gas exchange again so those cells can stay alive. And then once it gets to station, that goes into our incubator and it incubates for X period of time. When those cells, um, what it, now that it's in a sealed system and it happens on the ground as well, those cells are um, using up the nutrients that's in their media. So at some point you have to change that, that um, media. So now you have a sealed system, but somehow you have to get the media out of that sealed system, the old media, and put in the new media. But you can't break the seal of the system and you also don't wanna drain it because if you drain um, a sealed container on space, um, the air that you would potentially let into the system now doesn't do what it normally does on the ground, right? I mean, when mm -hmm. if you have a sealed container on the ground and you want to pull air off, you would just, you know, hold it so all the air goes to the top and then you would inject a needle and pull out that air and everything would be done. Right. But in space, if you have some air in your container, it doesn't matter which way you move it, the, bu the bubbles just stay wherever they are. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So there's no, so anyway, so you have to figure out how now to do media exchanges, dealing with the sealed system, uh, keeping everything sterile and dealing with air that could be introduced um, when you're uh, doing that media exchange. And so with our cell culture plates, uh, what happens is the crew now goes into that incubator. They pull out that box that's holding the, the plates. They put it into the, the um, life sciences glove box and we have, what we call support kits that are flown with that. And this is the other thing that you have to think about, the media. Typically the media that um, a scientist would use to uh, feed their cell cultures, they just pull a, a, a big you know, 500 milliliter container out of their refrigerator, they warm it up in a water bath, and then they um, pour a little bit into a 50 milliliter tube and then they pipette some of that out and then they pipette that into that fresh media into their cultures. Well, everything I just said there can't be done in space, right? So you can't you, have- you, Use the term media. Yep. Why is it called media? Um, so it doesn't, yeah. doesn't sound like the right word. Yeah, it's, it's medium or the you yes. can say media or medium. So it's, it's the uh, material, that's what they call it, media. They think rather than media, like the news media, it's media 
like it's it's um, a medium, it's a substance. Right, I would understand medium, but so the yeah. it's the equivalent of medium. Mm -hmm. Okay, I just was because to give it something a new word, media, yep. means in my mind that there's some other di dis, uh, significant difference between the other. But you're saying it's the same thing. It's, it's just a same. medium that's being created that needs to be injected in so that the cells survive, thrive, and do whatever you're looking to do in the experiment. Right. Exactly. Okay. So. So now that process, you know, we have to translate that into how we can do that in space. So what we typically do is all the medium, I'll take media or medium that we're using, we fill up the appropriate size um, syringes um, that are, you know, syringes that you would see in a life science lab and we put caps on them. And then that all goes into the life sciences glove box and now our sealed culture plate, the crew takes that out of a box, the box that's the second level of containment, they take mm -hmm. it out and there's ports on this culture plate that are sealed until you connect a syringe to it. And so they'll connect the filled medium syringe to one of the ports, because there's two ports in this um, culture plate. And then they connect a waste syringe to the outlet port. And now what they do is they pull a little bit of the old media out of the culture and they push in a little bit of the fresh and they pull and push and they pull and push until all of that fresh medium has been added to the culture and about 80% of the old medium has been pulled out and it's now in a waste syringe. And then I, I'm trying to visualize this. Mm -hmm. it, I'm, I'm seeing a space that is contains the cells or whatever you're looking to work with floating around mm -hmm. and therefore how do you ensure that you don't get the actual culture the cell the cultured cells how do you make sure that you're just getting the medium I, there i'm picturing movies where you have air pockets all over the place and yeah and there's little bubbles floating how do you make yeah. sure that they're not separated or you're taking the wrong particulate yep. out Another great question. So, um, so there's two types of cell cultures that you um, that we support. One is an adherent cell culture, and that's where the cells are actually growing attached to the bottom surface of that culture plate. And then the other type is the suspended cell culture, and these are cells that are floating um, inside of the media and not attached to anything. So you're right. If you do just a media exchange on those suspended cell cultures, you very well could pull all of the cells out. So now that's part of the puzzle. How, what do you do to address that, right? In space, because it's easy on the ground, because even on the ground, when you do suspended cell culture, those little cells, um, even though they're suspended, um, they float down towards the bottom of the cell culture plate. Right. And, so, and I, how do I, before you get to the answer of it, please don't yep. forget to give the answer. Yep. What's an example of a suspended environment? So, what on earth is suspended? Right. Well, I mean, I, I know that if you sneeze, something stays for a period of time and can float down or there's wind or some type of activity that can create a suspended particle, but I never thought in a closed environment, it wouldn't all eventually fall to the ground. Right, and it does. And, and it's really one of the reasons to do cell culture in space. And particularly with, um, there's reasons to do both adherent and suspended cell culture, 
but suspended cell culture in space, um, it's really the only place that you can do an environment that's totally quiescent. That, uh, because on the ground, what they do is they will um, either just let them settle. They don't necessarily attach to the plate, but they let them settle. Um, so a lot of times they put them on shaker tables. So they're in their culture plates and they're on a shaker table that just gently continuously uh, yeah. shakes mm -hmm. the culture. So those cells stay in suspension. Sometimes they have a stir bar inside of the culture where just every so often it spins and then it makes the cultures um, suspended. Yeah. There are different yeah. types of culture plates on the ground that um, encourage the cells not to attach. And so, so yes, it's, it's definitely um, difficult to keep cells in suspension on the ground. And that is one of the reasons to do suspended cell culture in space, because the thought is that it can more closely mimic what's happening with your cells in your body. Uh, okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, that statement in itself is a challenge for me because uh, unless it's a liquid or well, being right. brought in through your lungs, it's really never, it's suspended, but it's not suspended the same way your body would be suspended. Right. You're, you're right on that. Um, but what it does is it allows the cultures in suspension to grow in three dimension, which when they're adherent or on the ground, it's hard to keep some, and, and cells in your body grow in three dimensions. Right, right, because they're sitting in a fluid bath that allows it to right. be able to grow in any, or example being in the ocean, mm -hmm. you, you, it can grow in any dimension it wants. Once it's on the floor, it's gonna grow in half of the, half of the dimension, half of a 360. Right. Okay. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. So the idea of suspended cell culture is that, you know, you're replicating what's going on in the body by keeping those, um, allowing those cells to grow in three dimension. And, and the other thing is, is that when you grow them in three dimension, the thought is, is that you're more closely replicating, um, you know, say some of the different organs in your body. So say um, a lot of research is done on the heart using um, the heart cell, which is called a cardiomyocyte. And so having, um, you can actually grow uh, cardiomyocytes in three dimension that are functional in the sense of that they're beating like your heart is not functional in the sense that they're pumping necessarily pumping blood through, you know, something else, but you can have, um, little, they're like little teeny three-dimensional, you know, heart tissues floating around and they're beating. But does the, the actual myocyte pump? It beats. Doesn't really? Pump. Not yes. Yes. You can make, um, we actually just did a, um, experiment up on station with, um, it wasn't cardio, it, it was cardiomyocytes, but they were seeded, which means they were inserted into these collagen tissues. Yeah. And then they start growing. And what they do is they make that, it's called an engineered heart tissue. It makes that tissue start beating. And so we have video of the little engineered heart tissues. They're all beating up on orbit. So the, in our, in our body, mm -hmm. the heart cells, the myocytes mm -hmm. are, I'm going to use terrible words, but please excuse me on this. They are designed to be a actively pumping or beating cell type to perform its function as an mm -hmm. aggregate of the whole heart. Yes. I said that right? Yes. Yep. They, wow. they are designed, they are programmed to beat. And, and um, you know, you have to give them the correct media and nutrients in order to start that, but you can even have, and we've done this experiment as well on station, 
where we had two-dimensional um, cardio, uh, a two-dimensional um, culture of cardiomyocytes, and that that will beat as well. So you can, and what happens is they start they if you look at it, and it's the same with a three-dimensional culture as it is with a two-dimensional culture. If you look at it through the microscope, when the cells are first um, kind of joining for lack of a better word, joining together and becoming one culture instead of a bunch of different separate cells. In the early stages, you can see those cells are start to beat, but they beat at um, irregular rates. They beat at different, they're not in synchrony. But mm -hmm. as that culture matures, because of the uh, communication between the cells, once they're touching each other, it starts beating in synchrony. And so you can see, um, in a two-dimensional culture, you can see one side of the culture's beat, which then kind of ripples through the whole culture and you can see it start becoming synchronous. And then it's the same thing with the engineered tissues. Um, once they start beating, which it takes about a week after you've formed these tissues, the whole tissue, um, the experiment we did there, they were on posts, flexible posts. So when the, tissue, when the cells beat, the whole tissue contracted and you could see the little posts flex because we're, you know, they were actually, you know, essentially little heart tissues. Okay. So you're going to give me a little heart lesson here. Sorry. Uh, the heart is continuously beats. We don't know why it continue, why it goes and why it stops to, a, in terms of the, the larger, um, the universe itself, like this thing continues to go. I didn't realize that they beat. Uh -huh. When we look at other, is there any other part of the body that act, does the function that it's supposed to do when it's not part of the larger whole? Let me give you an example, if I'm not clear. Are, does a lung cell exchange oxygen without the uh, alveoles and not the, the system setup, does the liver cell detox by itself? Does the brain uh, accent, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know what I'm asking? Yeah, I know you're asking. And, and I will preface it to say that I am not the expert in all of these different types of cells, but I can tell you that, you know, like these cardiomyocytes, they're not actually, they're beating, but they're not necessarily pumping because it doesn't have all of the components, all of the musculature that's required to actually pump something. Maybe someday, and that is the idea that someday you can make, um, you know, quote, artificial organs out of stem cells. So they're not really artificial. They're just made in a lab as opposed to, you know, you're being born with your heart. But so they don't, so it's not really doing the pumping of the blood, but it is beating. And it's the same thing with other organs in your body, which is the idea of trying to get three-dimensional tissues. The idea is that a three-dimensional tissue more closely represents what is happening in your body. And when you, you know, say, do a drug study, because this is how they do it on the ground, right? They, they have a, you can have a two-dimensional, let's just say you have a two-dimensional culture of kidney cells. And then you yeah. want to see how drugs impact those different drugs impact those cells. And so you add um, a drug to that two-dimensional culture, and then you may do some genomic analysis or metabolomics, you know, transcriptomics. You may do some type of analysis to look at how that drug affected those cells. 
the idea is that that can translate to how the drug would affect your kidney in your body. But people think that the two-dimensional structure of cell culture on the ground is not necessarily uh, well representative of a three-dimensional organ in your body. Hence the reason to try to do three-dimensional. So the idea is that now if you have a three-dimensional tissue of kidney and you add um, drugs to it, because that three-dimensional uh, tissue of kidney may have uh, several different types of cells in it because each of your organs have a variety of cell culture cells within them that that now more closely. Um, so, so to tie this back, the one reason for bio life sciences is a, in theory, is mm -hmm. a better reper, a better representation of the biological systems that would exist in I'm tying this together. I'm a little slow. Oh. We're tying it together because life sciences, which is biologicals or, or living organisms, you're, that can't be reproduced the same way on earth. So space gives us that three-dimensional perspective data uh, analysis that we wouldn't have had otherwise. Right. Or maybe it gives us a better model for three-dimensional. Yeah, that's right. Improved over what we would have. So the two would give us one, but this one level could be a, by a factor of 15%, but 15% could be the difference between living and dying. Right, exactly. So, okay. And so then the idea back to even what I was discussing with the post to the hardware is now, you know, now we can, if, if space provides a good model for um, representing three-dimensional tissue, and also, which I haven't even talked about, provides a model of different types of disease processes that occur on the ground potentially, now we want to be able to make that hardware, tying this back to the hardware, you want to be able to make hardware that supports that and doesn't impact that, that you want to be able to be studying strictly the microgravity environment. You don't want to be studying how, um, you know, your little 3D spheres of cardiomyocytes are, are reacting because they're in type, some type of um, piece of hardware that they don't like. Is it about as- <laughs> No, no, no. So you, yeah, you're, you're a combination of- analyzing what the actual experiment is while simultaneously uh, negating all the positive possible reasons for the experiment to not be indicative of a true condition. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So those, and that's why I say that, um, you know, there's no such thing as a simple space life science experiment. It, it so, takes, go ahead. Where, can you give me an example of where you went wrong or how you've like, I mean, two things. One, how expensive is this? And two, ha have you, I've got to believe that there's teams or you have been a part of the actual of doing it wrong. You just missed the boat. You got it up there and ah, we just made that mistake. And because of that, the data is useful, but not as much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, I've, I've been doing this for over 20 years and our center has been around for 37 years. So we've certainly had our share of, um, you know, I hate to call them failures, but, um, you know, anomalies is really the word in the, uh, in the space business. And, you know, and, and you, you can have a whole range. You can have a range where maybe something didn't go quite the way you wanted it 
to the range of things going, you know, horribly wrong. And so there's a there's a huge range of um, you know things that can happen in space, really. So what's and, an example of a horribly wrong? Well, so this is this is um, this is a life. <laughs> I can think of one. So this two. There was a. Um, we actually support a lot of K through twelve educational experiments, and so we had this experiment um, that was. Uh, uh, butterflies in space, and the idea was: can can uh, without gravity, can an organism as like a butterfly go through complete metamorphosis? And um, so we had, and it was a K through twelve educational experiment. So this was one where in house at BioServe, we we worked with the organism, which kind of brings me to our next point in bullet point. But we worked with the organism to design the habitat to um, to be able to successfully keep it alive and then through its entire life cycle. And of course we tested that all on the ground. And so when we got to space, um, now I have hundreds of kids watching. We had a camera on it. We're watching it in real time. We're, we're putting that on a, a website. And so now I have hundreds of kids um, in their classrooms where they have, they're watching this happen. Um, they have experiments running in their classrooms and these caterpillars are eating their food every day. And pretty soon they go to um, make their chrysalis and um, as they're forming their chrysalis, they all go to the top of the, uh, interestingly enough, they go to the top of the habitat, they hang down and they start forming their chrysalis, but instead of forming their chrysalis, they all dried up and died. And it was like, oh, what? <laughs> like, what? Because, you know, you, you do these experiments in the spaceflight hardware over and over again on the ground to ensure that you, you know, it's an iterative process and you do it over and over again. And you, and you know, so that you at least have a, you know, a, a very high level of confidence that you're going to be able to conduct it successfully on the ground. And, um, and, and it didn't, they all died. And, and so it's something that when we came back, you know, we did a bunch of testing with and everything to try to figure it out. And what we figured it out was I, I had decided that um, I should, for the space flight experiment, I should get a, a fresh batch of food because you know we want to have everything as pristine and as good as possible for the space flight experiment. Well, it turned out that that fresh batch of food was contaminated. Oh, wow. So I've always learned that we always do a big test uh, prior to the space flight and we do a big test on the ground in the, in the configuration that we're going to use for the space flight. And so what I've learned is if there's something like that, that we're gonna use for space, that I use it in that last big test too, to ensure there's no issues. So there's so, a bunch of little kids, there's a bunch of children who've been like damaged for life. Well, <laughs> funny, so funny, cause this was part of something I was gonna say later in terms of the broader impact, but I might as well just talk about it now, like broader yeah. impacts was so, um, I had sent out an email to all the teachers saying, you know, I'm so sorry that this happened, blah, blah, blah. And I had one of the teachers, actually several of the teachers respond and say that their kids were super excited about it because in their classrooms, their butterflies, their caterpillars all formed chrysalises successfully and all formed butterflies. And so they all felt like they were just a little bit superior to the engineers. <laughs> And, and so, and, and the other thing they said was it was an incredibly um, 
great learning experience for the students to see that not everything always goes the way that you want it to. Right. It's not the, it's not the plate. It's not this um, whitewashed or not whitewashed, but uh, this fabulous mirror that we see that things go well. Right. You said you had a second one. I I do want to bring up now. I remembered how I got to you. I, I was trying to figure out where I had read an article about spiders Mm-hmm. in the International Space Station. And we brought yeah. this on our first conversation and how the spiders had, they had positioned themselves. Well, on earth, a normal spider has a web and it's a little bit off center where the center is. And they they come from the top and they go down and they would get to the center. That's how they would capture their prey. But yeah. I think I had read that in this situation, even being in space, the spiders were using light as an orientation, not just gravitational pull or positioning. Mm-hmm. And that the, the center of the spider a web was more central as compared to the way it was on earth. Mm-hmm. And that's what got me excited about finding someone involved in life sciences in space. That's where we mm-hmm. got. So I don't know if I said that well, Yes, you did. And actually, I think that kind of ties into my second bullet point of how you make an unnatural environment natural. Okay. And because and I really wanted to talk about the expider experiments that we've conducted. Oh, perfect. In regards to this. So, um, you know, one of the things that we want to do when we fly these um, experiments to space, and particularly when we're flying these small organisms, and we wanted to see about behavior like can a spider spin an orb web in space? Um, you know, we want to make an environment again that's really as natural for them as possible, so that they exhibit the behaviors that they would normally exhibit on the ground, right? And so, with this, um, we we actually did two different spider. Ex- we did two different spider experiments, and um, the first one that we did, you know, what what we wanted to do was because these um, it's about well, we did one on the shuttle, trying to organize my thoughts. We did, we, we did one on the space shuttle that launched on the space shuttle. And we did one that launched on the um, um, Dragon capsule to the space station. Yeah. And those two vehicles have a little bit different requirements, right? So the space shuttle one, you hand over your hardware to NASA, they load it on the space shuttle and within a couple of uh, days, it's in space, right? And so we, we actually conducted the first experiment on the space shuttle. And then with the SpaceX vehicle, you hand your experiment over to NASA and it can be five to seven days before it's, uh, you can get eyes on it. So wow. one of the things, yeah. So one of the things we had to do with the first, um, with the spider experiment was we had to figure out, okay, how do we contain this spider so it doesn't start building webs before we can get a camera on it, right? Because we don't want, we wanted to catch it adapting to the uh, spaceflight environment. We didn't want to uh, catch it after it already adapted because yeah. once it <laughs> it's launches, like showing showing up after the baby's born. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. That's so, good. Yeah. That's what yeah. came to mind. I apologize for. That. Yeah, I'm sorry, honey. I missed it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's right. There's, yeah, and um, so you know, so what we had to do was we had to contain the little spider uh, in a in a little cubby hole for uh, lack of a better word, in a little cubby hole, and, um, but also keep it alive in that cubby hole until we needed it you know, to be released and then into its environment. And the environment has to be um, 
well, we have to contain them, right? I mean, you have plastics or you have metals and those aren't necessarily something that, um, you know, is conducive in a microgravity environment necessarily of a spider walking on. So, um, oh, okay. Because uh, just because uh, with low gravity, they're not going to get the same traction right. when they're, exactly. okay. Yeah. And so, you know, so we add, uh, we do testing with different types of materials um, that we can um, put into the habitat that would make the, you know, organism more quote comfortable. Obviously a spider isn't thinking higher level like that, but you want it to be able to move around easily. And so for us, we use balsa wood which, you know, has some gripping capability because, yeah. because with the, um, you know, plastics, it's so slippery, there's not necessarily any gripping and you don't know if it's just going to float off of that, um, you know, float off of the plastic as opposed to being able to kind of grip it. They can obviously lay a, a web anchor with their silk, but they can't grip with their legs. So we yeah. did balsa wood. And um, so anyway, so um, in our first flight experiment, and this kind of goes back to things going wrong, we actually launched two spiders because we thought, okay, well, if one of the spiders uh, doesn't want to come out of its cubby hole or um, dies, we're going to launch two. And so we launched one in the, the one that we really wanted to study. We, we, wa we launched that one in the primary section of the habitat. And we launched the second one in, a little, in the little cubby hole. Well, somehow um, right before launch, that one in the cubby hole, there was just like the smallest little um, space between the door of the cubby hole and the wall. And that spider squeezed through there and went out into the um, main compartment of the habitat. So now we have two spiders inside of the main portion of the habitat. Yeah. And typically spiders aren't necessarily friendly towards each other. Um, you know, spiders are, they're really kind of, they may, you may find multiple spiders in an area, but each one has their own space, right? So, so, so this, you don't, you don't sit down with them before you send them up and give them instructions. <laughs> like, please stay in your cubby hole. When we get to this point, you come out, don't do anything bad in the cubby hole. And by the way, if you run into your friend, we want you to play nice. You don't right. do that. I'm assuming nope. so. No, you don't be, you don't have like a survey that they have to fill out to see if they're behaviorally ready for this type of right. Exactly. It's the crazy. Uh, I, thought, I thought this was more like science, really experiments, but I guess it's kind of random. You just put them right. together. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> so that was, um, so then it, we thought, oh man. And, and we saw this right when we were turning over and it was too late to do anything. Cause again, that container is sealed. Yeah. Uh, but so you saw this on the ground. Yes, we saw it right. Oh, before. wow. You Happy. saw it before it even got off. So now you're like, oh, my God, we don't know what's going to happen. Exactly. And it, and, it, and it was just too late because, again, these are sealed containers. They're, you know, they, you can't, you don't just snap a latch and open them up. It's, they're screwed shut, essentially. And so uh, we had to let it go. And, and, um, and so we, it got to station and we got it under the camera and um, we, <laughs> This is a long story. That's okay. Had, Go ahead. I want uh, to hear it because I, I, the story, I had heard a little bit about this. I don't know where, maybe it was something I was reading when I was first looking at the, this, these, uh, those articles. And I thought this happened all in space, but the fact that it happened on the ground, it, that's a panic mode. Like we, yeah. we screwed up and we yeah. have no clue. And it's, it's like going to bed at night and saying, I shouldn't have sent that letter. I don't know why I sent that letter. This is going to be a big issue. You wake up in the morning and say, ah, eh, don't worry about it. Right. 
Okay. Yeah. So yeah, tell me the, tell the whole story. Yeah. So, so, you know, so it gets to station it gets in front of the camera and, and the reason the, the spider really hadn't, um, we hadn't released any food because here's the other thing, right? You have to have, spiders will build webs if they don't have food because they are trying to catch food. But eventually if they don't have food, they'll stop building webs because um, they obviously need food to live, but they just, they stop having kind of the um, stimulation to do that. So we had little uh, fruit flies, larvae, because um, these spiders can um, uh, catch fruit flies. They were small spiders. So we, in the bottom of the habitat, had a different little habitat specifically for the fruit flies. And once it got to station, the cover on that habitat was pulled off by the crew member. Um, and now that allowed any fruit fly larvae in that section to kind of come out, you know, form little, they also go through a metamorphosis and um, form a little cocoon and then hatch as a fly and, um, and come into the habitat where the spiders were so that they would have food. Um, so those flies started coming in and lo and behold, um, one of the spiders, so when we first got the camera on it, you couldn't really see any of the spiders. Um, it looked, they were tucked up. Each one of them was in a separate corner, kind of tucked in their own corners. But pretty soon one of the spiders came out and spun a web and it was a mishmash of web. It was just webbing everywhere. And it was hard to tell because um, we didn't have the camera continuously running. So it was hard to tell whether both spiders actually came out and just made like, it was like a cross hatch of webbing. It was not an orb web at all. But then pretty soon, um, one of the spiders started, you know, the spiders eat their, eat their web is how they take down their web every day. They oh, really? Every web. day? Yes. Typically, Let's... spiders will rebuild their web every day and they, and they basically eat their silk and then produce more silk. So they, they eat it to because the web becomes less functional or they eat it because they're hungry? Um, it's just, they, they take it down, they're taking it down and they're, they're eating it because it's, um, I should know the answer to that, but it, they're basically eating that because it's, um, it's a lot of nutrients. Think of it as nutrients. Yeah. I, that's what I mean. Is that it's, it's not, food, but, it's not, but right. they don't take down the whole thing. Do they, they take down the whole thing or just pieces of it and replace it. They'll take down the whole thing. Really? Yes. So like they wake up and say, let me take this all down, start again. Yeah. After a certain amount of time, they will, they take down their webs and then they rebuild it. And usually what they'll do is, um, you know, at a certain time of day, they'll take down their web and, um, and it depends on the spider because not all spiders are orb weavers, of course, but, um, for an orb weaving spider, it will be, um, typically it can be, um, it can buy, be either really, they can be building them in the evening in the, in the, you know, dusk hours, or they build them in the dawn hours typically. All I'm thinking about is I'm thinking about a street merchant. You know, they, they go, they end of the day, they take down their whole display, everything they spent all the time. They go home, they come back the next morning and they set their whole display up again. And right. every, so every day. <laughs> okay. yeah. so, I, I, I bet if we did a survey of a hundred thousand people that there would be three who say, no, 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 no. I take it down every day. Yeah. Yeah. I never knew that. That's great. Right. And, you know, and there'll be times where for whatever reason, a spider doesn't do that, but typically yeah. they take it down every day and build it a fresh one. Okay. So, 
So this spider came out and she's, she's uh, and, and also, if you didn't know, most um, of the spiders that you see on webs are females. They're either females or young males. The males, once they get older, they don't build webs. They only look for females. Um, the females are the ones that build the orb webs. Uh, so they're working, uh, yeah. there's, they're working as a spider and they're working in as a human. Ah. Yeah. Yep. So, <laughs> so, so she'll, um, so she'll spin, uh, uh, so she started eating all the web and then pretty soon, lo and behold, she built an orb web that was way better than the crisscross cross web, but it wasn't quite as perfect or, you know, as a web that you would see on the ground, but it's like, wow, she, she did pretty good. She's and learning. She, she's learning orientation to space. And, and what spiders do when they build an orb web is the radii of the web, which are kind of like the anchoring lines, they, they drop. Typically what they do is they'll be on a tree branch or, you know, underside of your house or whatever. And they set an anchor with their web, with the silk, and then they let basically let go and drop down and then anchor their line somewhere. And then they crawl back up and then they move over and then they lay a line and then drop down. So they use gravity, right? To lay a lot of those lines. And um, obviously in space, there was no gravity. So we watched her and what she did was she would lay an anchor line and then she tried to let go, right? She let go and then she just spun there and didn't, and, and was basically just spinning and spinning in the habitat without holding on to anything. So she got back to the wall, you know, she kind of bumped back into the wall, grabbed it, then she would let go again and she wouldn't drop down. So then what she did was she laid her anchor line. She crawled all the way down the side of the habitat, all the way across the bottom, laid her anchor line and then climbed up her anchor line. And then she walked across a little bit, laid, put an anchor in and then crawled all the way down. So she learned that she just had to crawl down the sides of the habitat in order to make her web. And she was able to make a pretty good web. Now along comes the second spider, right? Second it's spider. A, it's fascinating up. because we, uh, you, you don't, I'm almost asking myself, is the spider thinking like, mm -hmm. wow, this is not working. Hmm. How do I do this? Or is it just a reaction? And I've got to believe there's more. And I'm sorry. Right. To, I'm sorry to make an insect sound so intelligent, right. but I've got to be thinking they're sitting there going, come on, something's wrong here. I've got to figure this out. And they, mm -hmm. their trial and error, it's not completely genetic anymore. Right. It's, it's really, um, you know, if you, and this to me is what's so fascinating about these types of experiments in space is that you're, you're taking an organism that for millions of years has evolved in a gravitational environment right? Everything yeah. they do, everything that they've ever learned to do for millions of years, they've learned in a gravitational field. Now we're taking them and we're, and, you know, and it's not a higher order organism really. And, you, and you're putting them in an environment with no gravity. And yet what you see is really kind of the, the survival of the species, right? It's got to figure out how to make a web because that's how it catches its food. Yeah, and if but it doesn't make its web, Yet it's you can we can downplay it's a survival of the species, but the actual act of figuring that out because 
millions or thousands of years of evolutionary change didn't adapt them at all to living in space. Right. Exactly. And they're, they're figuring it out within hours or days yes. or days in this case. So, so is there a cognitive, even micro cognitive component of, well, let me see, I've got to build right. this. Right. Well, and, and that's exactly what I was going to continue on to saying that although it's survival of this, you know, you think, okay, that's survival of the species they still have some mechanism to figure out like, this is what they have to do. Hmm. And so, it, you know, it's, it's just, and that's, again, what I find so fascinating about these types of experiments is that you think, oh, it's a spider in space, what's the big deal? It's like, to me, it really has an impact of looking at behavior and organisms and looking in an environment that you would never be able to replicate for the extended period of time that you can on the International Space Station. So it's just, you just learn things that you wouldn't ever be able to learn. So what happened to Spider 2? Because so I know then spider, spider 2, two. Yeah. So Spider 2 comes along and, um, and we think, oh no, now this is gonna be like, you know, Spider Wars. But that Spider <laughs> 2 came along and, and not too long after the first one spun her web and she started spinning her web. And, and, and she essentially spun a web just in like the first spider was more like the first, the top half of the of the habitat. Second spider was the bottom half of the, the habitat. So they kind of got their little territories and the second one made their web. And pretty soon we had pictures of two orb webs in the habitat. And, you know, and it's just like, you never, we didn't predict that at all. We thought with the two spiders that they either wouldn't spin the web. We thought that maybe they would, you know, eat each other. Eat each other. Yep. And yet here, did, did you find that the second spider learned it faster by watching the first one? I, I don't, I don't think so. I, their webs were very kind of similar in, in, um, in their asymmetry. Um, but I think that was just the, I don't so they, think they both went to the, through the same process. Yeah. And, and orb and orb weavers typically don't have very good eyesight. So it probably really, it can sense the other spider there, but it doesn't really see what that spider necessarily is doing. So, so as an experiment now, this would be an interesting outcome. If one spider built it in one geometric pattern in the beginning, screwing up, and another one built it in a different ge geometric pattern, and they built it differently in different geometric patterns to get to the end, it meant that they have the capacity to, no matter what environment it is, find their own path. Mm -hmm. Not just that they didn't find it this way and they eventually both f followed the same path. Right. They actually had to cognitively come up with a path. Yeah, is, independently. Independently. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So. I, I don't know if it was you, but there's one interview and I don't remember which one, if it was an interview, someone said that when cockroaches were reproduced in space, they came back a different color and faster. Hmm. That wasn't me. I don't, I'm not yeah. familiar with that one. Yeah, there's, they, they came back, I think, I'd have to think about which one. It might be the one we just did on reproduction and sexuality. Mm -hmm. But they came back a slightly different color and they actually operated, they were faster. Mm -hmm. So my, yeah. my theory is don't bring any more up. Right. 
<laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, that, I've always said that's funny because I've always said uh, working in this field and you know and having things die and things like that. I always say, oh my god, we should just fly cockroaches. You can't kill them and they live forever. <laughs> yeah, well, now you know, and I think it's in the reproduction and sexuality one, is that they actually improve their performance. Mm -hmm. So they were slightly bigger and they were faster. So if you bring that one up and do it again, pretty soon we're like some of these movies. Right. Yeah. So, so the, uh, and both of them survived. So going back to your spiders, yep. both of yep. them survived. Both yep. of them were able to eat. What else right. did you, what else did you glean from this? So, and then, um, and they were both, and then eventually um, what they started to do was they started to spin very symmetrical webs. And, um, and that's not necessarily what they do on the ground. On the ground, um, and this is where the impact or lack thereof of gravity came into play on the station experiment. On the ground, the spiders build the, the orb, the center part of their web, is typically um, a little bit higher off center. So it's not exactly in the center of the web. It's, it's in the top, let's say one third of the web. And, and then that the orb weaver typically sits in the middle of that center part of the web and faces downwards, right? To, and because that bigger section of the web is, is really where, you know, they're probably, you know, planning on uh, some type of fly to get caught or bug to get caught in their web. And so then they can drop down on it quickly. So um, what we started seeing on orbit was that these webs, um, at least for these first orb weavers that we, um, we launched uh, became very symmetrical. Um, and so the, the center of the web was exactly that in the center of the web, which is not necessarily um, uh, you know, what they do on the ground. So that was also fascinating. So not only did they learn how to build their web very well, they built it symmetrically. So that was, that was a very exciting and, and having the two spiders in the same habitat ended up being okay. Um, going back to the fruit flies, one of the things that happened there was because the fruit flies had unlimited access to the um, habitat, because we were thinking, well, you know, we wanna be able to have those flies um, in there to feed the spiders. Essentially the fruit flies um, propagated so much so that they, the larvae just started crawling out of their little container because it had access to the whole habitat. And essentially within about uh, two weeks, totally slimed the entire front viewing of, um, window of the habitat. And we couldn't see what was going on inside of the habitat anymore because the fruit flies took over. Okay, so uh, a question. Mm -hmm. Do you kill them all or do you bring <laughs> them back home? So they eventually use up all of their um, nutrients and then, you know, and of course the, cause they, it was up there for, oh, I, um, oh, this experiment did go to the station actually, this one went to the station. Um, it was up there, I think for, I don't know, maybe 120 days or something like that. And, and by the time uh, it, it, the hardware came back, the spiders had both died and the fruit flies had all dried up. Like they're, they ate all their food and then there was no more food and they, Dried up. My wife likes to take whatever she finds in the house, put a cup over it, and bring it bring it to the window, or to, to, to and put it outside. So, um, you know, I'm thinking, okay, would you ever? Do you ever bring them home? Well, I have a great story on that, which is really part of you know the art of having a successful experiment, and it's really about. Is that the next? Or would we have any more to finish yep. on the unnatural, or is no, that good? 
Okay. I'm kind of all, I'm meshing them all together. To yep. That's, that, that ends up happening, but I'm just making sure the art of achieving a successful life science experiment. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about on this, which we'll get to your question of, um, we, we supported a, a worldwide contest that was called the YouTube space lab. And, and basically YouTube and Google teamed up and they did this big contest where kids all over the world could submit ideas for experiments to be conducted on board the station. And, um, it, and, and then there would be essentially two winners and we helped support this whole contest. And, and so one of the winning experiments was proposed by a young man from Egypt <clears throat> and his experiment was, and again, it's spiders, but a different type of spider. <clears throat> Hold on, sorry, just one second. No, no worries. It was, um, <clears throat> he was looking at a jumping spider, which is called a um, zebra jumping spider or Salticus senecus. And his, he proposed launching a jumping spider to space. And um, his theory was, is that jumping spiders, they don't build webs. Now what jumping spiders do, as opposed to most spiders, jumping spiders have very good eyesight and they hunt in the daytime. And what they do is they, you know, just crawl around looking for bugs. And when they see a bug that they want to eat, you know, they jump on it. And that's mm -hmm. how they catch there. So they jump to catch their prey. And so the idea was <clears throat> when this spider got to space, his theory was it wouldn't be able to catch its prey because now if it jumps, <laughs> you know, it just starts ping-ponging around the habitat. Yeah. Right. So um, so anyway, so. Now, and, and the, the um, organizers of the contest had a certain mission that they wanted to um, launch this experiment on, which was um, in Japan. And, and it, was a, it was to launch it on an HTV rocket, um, which is just the name of the um, Japanese rocket that was going to the space station. So now, how, how do we do this? I, I thought, okay, first, so now I'm like, okay, I'm responsible for this. Now, how, how do I, okay, I can't, there's no store to buy a zebra jumping spider, right? Yeah, I, I, how do I well, find- Well, there's no store where you are. There's no store. <laughs> okay, the, uh, so, so when you think about the, the other spiders, the, the first two, there is a store you can buy them. No. Actually, there wasn't a store for that either. Well, okay. there are, you know, there are a few orb weavers that you potentially can purchase online, but not really. Okay, um, so, that's, so that's the, in theory, I would think you have to find, so it's not only there's not a store, there's normally not a store, but you right. had to find a jumping spider, which is indicative of a certain region in the world. Right, and, and, and luckily, jumping spiders can be found all around the world. But I needed to find this particular, the Salticus senecus, the zebra jumping spider. And luckily for me, the uh, zebra jumping spider is um, found right here in Colorado. Um, oh, okay. and, and so, but what, I don't just need a jumping spider. I need a lot of jumping spiders because now I'm starting from scratch, right? I'm trying to figure out how to build a habitat um, to keep this jumping spider alive so that when it gets to station, you know, we can film it and see if it can catch its prey. And so um, I was out, and of course this experiment starts in the middle of winter. 
<laughs> right? It's like, okay, how am I going to get a jumping spider in the middle of winter? So two things. Um, again, lucky for me in Colorado, it, it um, gets pretty warm in March. And when it gets warm, uh, jumping spiders start coming out because um, they, they basically uh, can winter over and they winter over in cracks and crevices and then um, come out when they start getting warm. So um, I was out in the back of my house uh, searching for jumping spiders <laughs> and was able to collect over a course of a month about you know 10 zebra jumping spiders. And so that's kind of the first thing where, you know I, I almost call this session like going above and beyond because my, my daughter has a video of me, you know, talking to the jumping spiders as I was trying to find them all and catch them. But, um, but these are the things that sometimes you have to do in order to make these experiments successful. So, um, but anyway, so the next thing we needed to do was, you know, we definitely had a video, these um, uh, spiders once they got to space and uh, we had to make a habitat that it would feel comfortable crawling around on again but it also needed little cubbies where it could hang out. But what we learned from our first experiment was that you don't want a little cubby where it can hang out where you can't see it. Because in the first experiment, prior to the fruit fly larvae kind of sliming the whole window, um, those spiders would get up kind of behind some little pieces in the habitat and you really couldn't see them. So we wanted to be able to see this jumping spider um, the entire time. And so what we ended up doing was designing a balsa wood insert that went in the back of the habitat that just basically had circles drilled out of it that were about, you know, a half inch deep and there were bigger circles and little circles so that the spider could crawl into those circles and feel like it was contained. And yeah, yet we yeah. would, it would always be in view of the camera. And then the next thing that we had to do was we needed to provide it food, which we were going to provide with the fruit flies like we did with the first experiment. And um, that, but we didn't want the fruit flies to slime all over the habitat again. So we had to, so we used the experience from the first experiment to now um, help us design a new habitat that also fit into where the spider was that would allow us to control the release of the fruit flies into the habitat and not just have them crawling everywhere, the larvae crawling everywhere and sliming the habitat. The third thing we had to do was um, when we launched on the Japanese rocket, this spider, again, we didn't want it to learn how to catch food in space before we got the camera on it. And spiders are actually water limited as opposed to food limited. They can go for extended periods of time, like most organisms, living organisms can go for an extended period of time without um, eating, but they can't go for a very long time without water. So what we did, what we figured out with this spider was we actually kept her, we designed a little cubby that had um, a little water container, which of course now has to be sealed. But what we did was we put a little um, cotton wick that came out of that water container. So that cotton wick was always moist so that she could um, you know, get her water from that wick, but stay in the container where the water was and not you know, get drowned with water. Right. So. And because, because the water's right there, she's going to stay in the it, location even longer because there's no need at this point. 
Right. And we actually had, um, we had a lever that kept that compartment closed. And then once she got on station, the idea was that the crew would open up that lever and then okay. her into the dig. And this one, we also learned not to have any small slots that she could squeeze through. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> so, you know, it's, so it's really, um, you do instead of think like an Egyptian, think like yep. a spider. How yep. would this thing get out? Right, exactly. So, um, and then the next thing, and then this, I mean, I can just think like an Egyptian. Isn't that a song? Yes, or a is. saying? Yep, it is. Okay, want to yep. make sure I wasn't saying anything derogatory. I just I thought it was a song. Yep, it is. So, so then you have to think about um, the for the HTV vehicle. It takes fifteen days. Oh, approximately wow. once that vehicle it did at that point once that vehicle launched to get to the station and there really isn't any there at that point there wasn't any temperature control on that it, i mean it, it was a pressurized um cargo compartment and um the temperature they warm it before they launch it but the temperature could get down to um pretty not freezing but uh fairly cold and fairly cold for a spider so all of this testing it seems, you know, I'm kind of talking about how we just developed all this. All of this testing took over a year, all of the development and with multiple spiders and, and putting spiders through their paces of, okay, I'm going to put you in the dark with some water for 15 days and I'm going to cool you down to 15 C or 10 C and we'll see if you make it, you know? <laughs> Sorry, guy. Yeah. Yeah. So but those are all the things that we did because those are all of the issues with launching something to space and, and you know, that you have to address. And so lo and behold, to make a long story short, we were able to successfully uh, get the zebra jumping spider. And actually we chose one other jumping spider. We wanted to hedge our bets um, again, but we had two separate habitats this time, instead of just one with two spiders in it, we did two habitats, each with one spider in it. Um, and we did a spider that's called a a Phytopus johnsoni, which is just a red jumping spider. And the reason why we picked that one was that um, because it was red, we thought, well, if for some reason we don't see the zebra jumping spider, this one will be a little bit easier to see. So these spiders traveled from in their habitats from Colorado all the way to Japan. And that's a story in and of itself. Um, I hand carried them all the way to Japan, all the way to Tanagashima, the island where they launched their rocket handed them over to the um, Japanese space agency who installed them on their rocket and, um, and they were launched to the space station. And so um, these jumping spiders got there. And of course now 15 days had gone by and we had no idea, we, we were hopeful that they were still alive. And lo and behold, the crew um, installed them into our incubator so that um, they could have you know, ambient temperature control but also we powered the camera and the lights for the um, habitat because the jumping spiders needed to have light in order to hunt. And um, when she installed them, um, this was actually Sunny Williams crew, when she installed them into the habitat, into the incubator, she released the spiders from their um, water compartments and we leave that compartment open so the spider can access the water whenever they needed it. And then she also released um, fruit flies into the habitat. But what we did with the fruit fly habitat was there was four separate compartments so that she would release flies from the first compartment and she would leave that open for two or three days and then come back and she would close that compartment and open up the next one, which was just food. 
and any leftover flies, the idea was that any leftover flies would climb in there to get their food, lay eggs and start a new colony of flies. And that way, because flies only live about, you know, a little less than a month, the fruit flies. So that way we would have multiple uh, generations of flies to keep the spiders alive over uh, an extended period of time with the idea to go back to your original question, could we bring them home alive? So, so we were able to get video of the jumping spiders in space. They actually were able to learn how to catch their prey. They, we caught them on video several times, um, trying to catch their prey. And really one, there's two really fascinating things about this experiment. One was, I, we have video of the jumping spider. She saw, she was on the back side of the habitat. She saw a fly on the front side of the habitat, but it was floating. It had lost its traction, the fly. So it was just kind of floating in the middle of the habitat. She crawled all the way over, like ran essentially all the way to the front of the habitat. She laid a piece of web anchor and she jumped out into the air, grabbed that fruit fly, and then her webbing pulled her back to the front of the habitat. Wow. So she learned that she must have learned that she couldn't necessarily jump because she without an anchor because she would just go wherever, but she, she not only learned how to um, jump to catch a fly, but she learned somehow, in my opinion, how short of a silk line she had to let out so that when she grabbed the fly, it would pull her back to a surface that she could hold on to. And it's interesting because I would have thought she just would have kept on going to the other side of the wall, to the other wall. Yeah. No, she somehow figured this out. And so that was really fascinating to me. And so then actually the, um, the spiders both got packed. They were both alive. Um, you said there were I mean, two things you learned how to catch prey. Yep. And I'm gonna tell you okay. that. So, the, so to answer your question, both of these spiders were sent back to earth alive. They were both alive when they came back. Um, by the time that we got them, because now they came back in a capsule that landed in the Pacific ocean and then it takes the boat to the um, bay. By the time we got there, um, we got them in our hands, which was about three or four days. Um, unfortunately, one the the zebra jumping spider had died, but the um, red jumping spider was still alive. And so now I thought, oh, this is perfect because she um, she had no flies by this time because she had been on station for about a hundred days, and, and the fruit, fruit fly colonies had run out. And so I thought, this is perfect. I can get a video of her readapting. To catching prey on the ground and see what happens. So I got a video camera on her, we fed her and she saw the spider. And again, she was on the back wall of the habitat. The spider was on the, I mean, the fly was on the floor of the habitat and she saw it and she jumped to get it. And the, and the fly was about halfway from the back to the front on the floor of the habitat. She completely missed and crashed into the front window and landed upside down on her back on the floor of the habitat. And I can tell you through the year and a half that I worked on developing this experiment and watching jumping spiders, they never did that. They never jumped so far that they crashed into something and then um, and missed their prey. Like they'll miss it a little bit, but not like that. So whatever, mechanism she was using for jumping in space she employed I don't know what exactly but she just 
the fact that she just completely crashed into the front of the habitat was just <laughs> not something that you see. I want to know when it happened, did you say, oh, <laughs> like, was there any empathy for the fact that you screwed up her entire jumping mechanism and now she's slamming into a wall? Well, I had been taking care of this spider for about 10 months. So. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you got to feel bad. The spider didn't, for no fault of their own, is now overshooting its food and smashing into a wall. Yep. Yep. But the good news is... Um, really within a short period of time, 10 minutes, she figured it out. Oh, really? She, That's yeah. how long it took, just 10 minutes? It took her 10 minutes. And it took her about four more tries. She, you can see in each time she was closer and closer, and then she figured it out. That's how quickly uh, she adapted back have, to the gravitational environment. Have you, I've, I don't think this is not an experimentation. Have you, in your time doing this, sat there and said, okay, how does this relate to humans? Would this happen? How does it, if this was a, I don't think we're gonna have rhinoceros in space, but would this happen? Have you, have you taken that mental journey mm -hmm. to so many other species and said, would it do this? Would it not? Would it adapt? Would it not? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it, you, you think about it because clearly we've shown that humans can adapt, but I, I don't know that we, you know, look, I mean, we do, and there's certainly studies on it, but there are probably, I don't know, a hundred different things that a crew member does every day that they've, when they're on the station, that they've figured out some way to adapt that whatever it is they're doing to do because they're not in gravity, right? Yeah. And, and we're not even thinking about it just because they, you know, you see them on video and they're just moving around and, but you know, that all takes quite a bit of adaptation and and now we're looking at a small spider and and a very simple thing as catching their food and realizing that they can adapt and so yes you 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 for me i always think about the bigger picture of you know if we want to go and colonize other places and and you know at varying levels of gravity you know, would we want to bring different organisms with us and can they adapt? And what does that look like? Because, you know, if you want to have some type of um, home on a different planet or the moon or wherever, you know, do you want an ecosystem that's similar to what you have on the ground? And if you do, then what does that look like? What are the ramifications of it? What organisms do you bring? How do they adapt? How can you keep them alive? You know, so it's something that you can sit and ponder for a long period of time. Well, sure. and, but in essence, what you've shared is that it will not be the same mm -hmm. unless you really, really, really think about the complete ecosystem in which they live. So therefore, you're, it's, it could be the experiment gone wild. Because you might figure out how to help a zebra spider might figure out how to do its jumping, yet the, the fruit fly or any of the other types of insects it eats, it will perform its own evolutionary change, which could mean that the fruit fly never get, is the jumping spider 
doesn't get the same amount of food. It doesn't eat the same. Right. It, it does some. So you don't know what that evolutionary or that that modification through a factorial of 10 different animal species or whatever, they could be completely running amok. Right. And, and you just don't know until, until you do it. it which, is, which is scary because do you want to do it? Right. Well, and that's why I think you have to think about what do you, what do you want your ecosystem to look like? And, and, you know, and it really can, it plays into, I mean, it's kind of philosophical, but it plays into, it really demonstrates on the ground, like people talk about, you know, you impact one part of the ecosystem, how it impacts another part of the ecosystem. And these simple little experiments essentially show that, I mean, to me, they show how, you know, taking something putting it in, uh, you know, putting them in an environment that's not something that they're, they've evolved in and looking at their behavior, you know, and then adding another thing to that environment, like you said, the fruit flies, um, you know, you're impacting the way that that ecosystem would normally have worked. You know? And you're still trying, you're still trying to make it similar to earth. Right. Exactly. And is that what we want to do if we go out to other, you know, planets? Bodies. Yes, if we just went to the moon, or if we were between Earth, the moon, and Earth, yeah. and what types of things can happen between them? There are I don't know the number that I hear all different types of numbers. Maybe I'll ask you. This is a good question. How many species of uh, of animals are on Earth? Jeez, I don't know the answer. I've-, I've been told fifty million. <laughs> yeah, and there's- I've been told like twelve million. And I'm trying to get a number that's more concrete because if we're losing 200 to 250 species per day on this planet, which is the numbers that are coming back, then how many do we have? And the complexity of the biosphere, the complexity of the the ecosystem is so intense that -hmm. there's no human capacity for us to be able to completely understand how all of them would react, let alone just humans reacting. Right. Mm-hmm. I know it, it's, you know, and, and I don't know the number of species and I'm sure it's in the millions and, um, but it, it just, you know, you, you, I don't know if I'll say it right, but it, you, you know, you just do realize how interconnected everything is uh, when you do these small experiments. And it does make you think, you know, how, you know, how does this all work in the way that it works? <laughs> it's kind of silly to say, but. No, no, I, well, I, the follow-up to that is, why, why do you do this? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, for me, it really is. I mean, honestly, part of me, I, I um, kind of accidentally uh, fell into this work. I can't say that my, I wasn't one of the kids growing up that was like, hey, I want to do something in space. Um, so I've definitely learned about space through my work here at the center. And, um, but I've always been interested in, you know, the life around me and ecosystems and, you know, obviously life sciences has always been a a passion for me. And so, um, to me, it's being able to do these simple experiments and, and maybe it sounds cliche, but it, it, it's, it's the challenge because these are certainly challenging to do any type, whether it's cell culture or these small organism experiments, it is super challenging to do these. And I, I always say it is not for the faint of heart it, it, because, you know, things go wrong. 
and, and it truly is two years of your life for, for an experiment and then something goes wrong and you can't do anything about it because you right. can't just walk down the hallway into your lab and say, oh, I'll fix it. Do, do you do, uh, uh, you've got insects. Do you do um, mice or any of those type of experiments? Yeah, so we've been a, um, and, and not uh, necessarily, I'm not the expert on rodent research, but um, we have somebody in our organization, uh, Louis Stodick, who's, uh, he's been one of, on the forefront of rodent research in space station. And, um, and we, our center has supported quite a bit of rodent research on space station. So we've, we've worked with, uh, because you can use microgravity as a model for bone loss and muscle loss, right? Because you're not loading the systems. Yep. And so, you know, so your body just says, well, I guess you don't really need all this bone anymore and you don't really need those big, strong muscles anymore. And so, um, so really uh, microgravity can be used as a model for bone loss and muscle loss in terms of drug development. So on the ground, it can take a whole year for an osteoporotic woman to lose 1% of their bone density. In space, that can happen in a month. And so think of it as an accelerated model. So we've worked, uh, we actually worked with a company to test a countermeasure for bone loss. And we did that in um, mice. So we launched the mice, they were administered the drug, and then you, um, you know, obviously measured their bone density pre and post uh, mission and look at the effects of um, the countermeasure that you gave to them. And we've done that with a muscle, um, a countermeasure for muscle loss, which is uh, cachexia, in people, which is muscle loss in people who have cancer, um, you lose a lot of your muscle. And if you lose a lot of your muscle, um, obviously that has other deleterious health effects. So um, if you can develop a countermeasure to that, uh, not only for people who are in space, but also for you know a large population of people on earth who have um, muscle wasting for or bone loss for a variety of reasons. So we've done that testing on station for sure. The, I'm gonna swing all the way back to a question I asked earlier, cost-wise. I mean, you, you, this has gotta be exponentially expensive to do a single experiment. It, it is, it, you know, it's, it's not cheap. I, I would say that. Um, it can run from the tens of thousands to the hundreds of thousands, depending upon what is being done. Um, you know, developing the hardware is expensive because of all of the requirements, the safety guidelines that we have to follow. Um, and, and that's a big part of the driver because now you have to develop, like I mentioned in the beginning, you have to develop these systems to support the organisms, but to meet all of the containment and safety um, guidelines so that you don't injure the crew or injure the vehicle. So it, it is quite expensive. And, and of course there takes lots of testing both on the hardware side, the science side, and then the integration of both the hardware and the science. I would have thought this would have been millions. So you've kind of shocked me with tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands. I would have thought a single experiment in space, taking the time that it takes, building the content, putting it together and getting the cost for launch Mm -hmm. the on on a vehicle and then the time and space i would have thought this would have been millions of dollars for any experiment well i i guess i'll preface that to say those costs that i uh said don't include the cost of the ride to space or the crew time um because at this point in time uh, for the most part 
NASA provides those services, right? The NASA is already contracting with the, um, the cargo suppliers, SpaceX and Northrop Grumman at this point, they're already contracting them to bring supplies to the space station. So, um, you know, and of course there's space on those cargo missions for science since, you know, the space station is the, um, for the US portion is the ISS National Lab. So it is a national lab and you are supposed to be conducting science on board. So NASA supports a lot of those costs because this it's in the national interest and this is what they're okay. uh, tasked so, to do. So it doesn't have, there is no cost factor. They NASA determines that if we're going to do this, this is the experiment we want. There are 500 applications. We're gonna select these 10. We're going to select them over a period of time. This is the space, the time, the resources we have. And whether that cost is an $80 million launch or it's a whatever million dollar launch, doesn't matter. You're not getting a proportionate bill or no one's getting a proportionate bill for that. Right. And that's actually done between NASA for the U.S. portion. It's done between NASA and um, the Center for the Advancement of Science and Space, which is CASIS, but also known as the ISS National Lab. That's the organization that's responsible for the portion of resources that are part of the um, Space Station National Lab. And so NASA and CASIS work together to apportion the resources to um, support the different types of experiments. And those experiments can be um, funded by NASA, they can be funded by CASIS, the ISS National Lab, they could be funded by, um, like we support experiments that are funded by the NIH, um, mm -hmm. and then it flies under the the allotment. That That's the, the National in, um, Institute of Health. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. Yes, the National Institutes of Health and the um, National Science Foundation. We support experiments that are sponsored by those organizations. We've even supported experiments that are science experiments, but totally funded by a commercial entity. Um, you know, that doesn't happen as much because the cost is higher, but it does happen or sometimes that their funding is leveraged by other funding. So, um, you know, it's kind of a wide variety. Now, NASA now does have a, a pathway for a strictly commercial um, kind of marketing PR types of things to be launched. And in those instances, um, like I think, I think Revlon did something like this last fall where they launched, I, I think it was like their perfume or something. And then they took a video of it in the cupola, which is the yeah. viewing window of the station. And so NASA now offers a pathway for companies that wanted to do something like that to pay to have that done. So in that instance, where it's strictly marketing, you know, PR, commercial, that organization pays um, NASA has a price list of its. Yes, I think that's fairly recent. The ability yes. to do commercial. Yes, I think it was just two or three years ago. Time flies, so I don't know exactly. Is, two or three are, years ago. I don't know how much you know about the other countries and their same orientation to testing in space. The the mm -hmm. Japanese, the Russians, the Canadians, the Germans are 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 they very similar in their approach? Do they have a a national lab on theirs the same way? So as far as I know, I, I don't think, um, you know, that their sections of the space station have necessarily been, uh, you know, named a national lab in their country. Um, you know, the Japanese space agency, which is called JAXA, 
you know, they have their own experiment module, Kibo is called, and, um, you know, and they, and they have um, experiments that launched the station. They actually even have a, um, a specific habitat that they built to support rodent research and they've launched it and supported some of that. Um, the, the, the bulk of the resources available on the station go to, you know, primarily US entities and then the international partners get a portion. So, um, and, and that's primarily because the US foots the majority of the bill for the International Space Station. Um, but the, 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 the Japanese Space Agency and also the European Space Agency and the Canadian Space Agency, they all have, um, you know, resources allocated to them during time periods on the station where they can also conduct, conduct experiments. And, and they typically do sponsor experiments and they conduct them. They just don't have as much resources allocated to them, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. So, the, I, and I don't know how much we've covered already, the direct impacts of these experiments, your number four. I'm yeah. ass- I think we covered a lot of it, but- I, I figured that, but there, there's gotta be, I'm, I'm going a little further and my, my head is spinning to, okay, you did this spider experiment, what happened on earth? You did this, what happened on earth? What are these true impacts that we're feeling? So I don't know if you've covered or plan to cover, I'm trying to go bigger to the larger uh, yeah, future mean, of humanity or future of all species on earth. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I guess that was my point of the impacts is that you you can have a, an experiment by experiment impact where, you know, you look at some gene expression experiment and you, and you understand which genes were upregulated and which ones were downregulated as a result of being in microgravity. And you can try to, you know, um, figure out what that means. And then you have, you know, technology that's being developed, obviously, that um, can be used for the benefit of station, I mean, of benefit of Earth, right? So it, it's true that NASA has a lot of technology that has helped um, improve things on Earth. And even for us, like, when you miniaturize these systems, you're advancing the technology field in labs. You're, a lot of these pieces of hardware are huge. Like we talked about in the beginning, they're, they're large and, you know, and if you can make them smaller, it takes less space. People have more ability to do things um, when they have less space to do them in, you know, and, and then you have the kids that I was talking about, you know, you have the next generation of explorers, you're inspiring them. And I know that's kind of cliche, but it's true. I mean, a simple experiment like a butterfly or a spider experiment, or even a jumping spider experiment or the a contest that's worldwide can expire a huge number of students to now go into um, these types of fields to be the next explorers and you know the next adventurers because I really think that's part of exploring outside of our planet is you have to be part adventurer to do that. So to me, um, and then of course you're advancing the scientific knowledge and of just the fields of all these different types of science. So. Mm-hmm. It, it just, it's hard to put it into words, but to me, it just impacts, you know, such a broad array of things from the very, you know, like this one child was impacted to we've impacted an entire field. We've impacted how people think about doing things in space. You, you've helped um, inspire and get people to think more broadly 
about what could be in space, not just what is currently. And so, um, you know, it's, it's hard to put into words, but it, no, that's okay. Uh, one, maybe this might help to give a little bit of traction here is the IP, the intellectual property for building the hardware. Is that owned by NASA? Is that owned by you? Do you release that to the general public as designs? Do you share that information with the world? So now that there is, now that you've learned how to miniaturize, do you give that away so that they can? Mm -hmm. And I would, um, the answer isn't clear. Um, so most of the, if we develop IP like our organization and there's other organizations like us, um, typically we own our IP. Um, we're a little bit different because we're a nonprofit entity and we are part of a university. And so we do share a lot of our IP so that other people can learn from what we do. So we definitely do. There are some, I would say, trade secrets that we keep secret um, only because this is our, we're nonprofit, but it is our line of business. So we, we want to be able to continue to do this for a long time. And, and there is competition in the field. And so we want to be able to stay on the forefront of the competition. Um, so it, it's really both. Uh, and, you know. I, one of the challenges that I've had, and I've already shared this with you, that I've been in this industry, however you want to call it. I think mm -hmm. life is, is everything. I, I it's amazing how many things that we use every day are in space. So when we talk about space, I think the word denotes going to moon, going to Mars, going to Jupiter, going on and on and on and exploration and everything else. And it's not that it's the, my, the mouse that I'm using is a space tech has space technology in it. The, the call that we're doing, which is a zoom call recording that's space technology, my package that I'm still waiting for that has been two months in delay. I don't know why, um, but it, 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 it is being tracked by logistics firms that use space technology, GPS and coordination and our foods get this way. And so every, everything that in a tier four country in the world, almost everything we do, you can't go through a day not being touched by space. So it's not really an industry. It's just where we are. Right. Yet NASA has, I learned this at Ames, NASA Ames facility in Silicon Valley, NASA is not allowed to market. Right. They cannot go out and promote. They can educate, but they can't promote. Right. And so the challenge that I'm having with these life sciences, this is my challenge, not like the industry has a challenge with mine, is I hear about these great experiments. They sound like they're doing something. They sound like, you know, you learned something. It was exciting. You know, too bad our, our, uh, our zebra didn't come back. Yes, we did learn about the red, the red guy fall, smashing into a wall. Uh, yeah, great. And, the, and there's a lot of them. We've had Charlie Bolden on the line and there are pieces of them, but it's not something I hear about. It's not that I'm uneducated. And yet, if you asked me to really give you 10 things that life sciences, when it comes to these type of experiments or rodents, or I, I couldn't, I can't name them except for those that you just gave me or the few that I've heard throughout these podcasts. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know. And so we can talk about it as being beneficial to all species on earth. But at the same time, I draw blanks. Mm -hmm. 
And I don't think that's a positive for the space industry, if we again calling it that. And I don't think it's positive for the possibilities unless there are better mechanisms to get this information out or uh, as you called it, you said, the direct impacts of these experiments outlined not in scientific papers, but for someone like me. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you agree with that sentence, that statement or not. Well, I, so, you know, I agree that, um, you know, the, um, the dissemination of this information, you know, isn't as broad as you would hope. But the other thing is I would say is that in terms of the life sciences, um, it, it's, it's really baby steps as opposed to giant footsteps. You know, it, it's like, let's go to the rodent experiment, for example, where I talked about, you know, testing a countermeasure for bone loss. That countermeasure that we tested with that company is actually on the market now. Well, is it on the market because of the experiment that they did on space station? No, but when they submitted their packet of information to the FDA, the data from that experiment was included in that information. So the, the research that they did in space wasn't the entire reason that that uh, um, medicine is now on the market, but it was a piece of the reason why that medicine is on the market. Yeah, even if it was to exclude an option. Right, or, or it, it showed that it had a benefit, right? So yep. it had data that, that contributed to the story of the development of that product. And, and the other thing I would say is, and, and so to finish that thought, so a lot of the experiments that we're doing are small pieces to hopefully a bigger thing. You know, a big discovery, a bigger product discovery, but nobody, but we're not there yet. And we're not there yet because one, the space station, you know, while it's been around for 20 years, it's really only been in the last 10 years where it's really been open to do is science, you know, and, and more science. Like every year we are able to do more and more science, but we're still not able to do as much science on the space station as you can do in your own lab, obviously on the ground, because I can walk down the hall, get into my lab and I can do, you know, set up 10 different experiments in one day. I obviously can't do that on the station. And so, Part of it is developing the technology to allow us to do these types of experiments and to do them at a higher frequency, um, at a lower cost, and, and be able to do iterative experiments so that if you find something interesting, it's not another two years until you can fly again to see, you know, to follow on with that experiment to see if that result that you found that was interesting is in fact interesting. Whereas in your lab, you would do that within two months. And so there's, there is a logistical uh, component of this, which is why you know, I think that we will, in terms of the life sciences, discover things from doing experiments in microgravity. It's just gonna take longer just because the logistics of doing it takes longer. It's interesting as you're bringing this up, uh, and I, you know this, the people who will eventually hear this don't know this, that I actually do no research before I do an interview. So you come to me with the information, I'm really the student in the entire environment. So these are real true questions that are happening in real time, mm -hmm. is that I had made, an, and the reason I would say that is I had made a misjudgment call. 
because it's space, because there's a lot of technology, and I hate to use that word, but rocketry through to life sciences to or, or, uh, the International Space Station existing, I think it's easy to overlay on top of it that life science and experimentation is advanced. Mm-hmm. And what you just said in all of this at the end, just a few seconds ago, what that said to me was I had I had given you a PhD in space. And the reality is, if we were to give it relative terms, we're using PhDs on earth or skilled craftsmen or whatever you want to call it. But what we're really doing in space is almost like a first grader getting used to and getting its legs. Mm-hmm. Is that is a that, good way to say it? It's a good analogy with regards to you know life sciences. I mean, I, I maybe after all these years, we're up to sixth grade. <laughs> Well, and, and in certain places, but some would be less, some would be right. more, but we're not in university yet. We're not right. at this. We're, I took the experiments to make them even bigger than they were. And yeah. that, that's just an assumption that I had made. And I, we all make assumptions right. and that's and where, it, oh, no, and I was going to say, but it's not to say that we haven't done complex experiments. There's been some very complex life science experiments done. It's just that the, the, quantity is not there. I feel like the quality is there now and more and more the quality gets better and better. We've gone to from just being able to do things in glass test tubes in or in space to, you know, designing culture plates that if you put your cells in that culture plate that's for space and you put them in a petri dish next next to it and you run an experiment on the ground that at the end of them both of the cells in both conditions have the same exact end results. And so that's huge. So the quality is really is, is really starting to get there. Um, now we need to get the quantity and the throughput there. And I, and I do know, and I, it's kind of jumbling in my head because I do know that for experimentation from one of our guests, uh, Yossi Amin from Space Pharma, they're creating a chip and the mm-hmm. chip has all sorts of experiments. I could have 280 experiments in one chip. And a chip is a, uh, a micro lab where materials are merged or treated in a certain way. So you get all these experiments back. But it's not at the same level that I probably had made assumptions about. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, and the chip, and we've supported, or it's called an organ on a chip. And um, we actually have supported um, an organ on a chip uh, we have a system that supports organ on a chip, and but that organ on a chip itself is new technology on the ground. So, um, so that's you know that's technology that's just coming along on the ground that we're now flying to space and trying to utilize in space, which we've made the system to support these chips and we're able to, but at the same time, um, that technology is still rapidly evolving on the ground. So it, it's, you know, and that, and it's very exciting technology. The whole point of an organ on a chip is to do, um, you, you know, a lot of drugs are tested in animal models prior to going to humans. And, and there really um, are differences between obviously rodents and humans. And so one of the ideas behind organ on a chip, it goes back to what we were talking about, the tissues from different organs in your body is, is that you could put, um, you know, some kidney tissue, some liver tissue, some heart tissue, some skin tissue, some brain tissue on one chip. 
and then you perfuse a drug through. And the idea is that it now more closely represents the human body. And that's what those organ on a chips are really trying to get to. They're not there yet, but that's the goal. Is so then it can eliminate animal testing if we're correct. actually using, okay. Yeah, it eliminates animal testing and reduces the number of failures of drugs because there's lots of drugs that get tested in animals and they look very promising, but then they go to humans and there's issues. And so that the idea of that is that you can eliminate animal testing, but you're also testing in a model that's much closer to the human body. And the because it's in microgravity, it allows that flotation component, which is a huge part. You're not in 2D, you're in a you're in 3D uh, and actually you're in a 4D environment. Mm-hmm. Um, time, space, location. The, there's actually four of them: lengths, width, height, space, and time. And and the other thing is, is while you're in that space environment, not only is the idea that you know you're you're more replicating kind of what happens in the human body, th- there are deleterious effects of the to the human body of being in space. So the idea is, and, and some of them are. Um, with regard not only bone and muscle loss, but also potentially um, they think that, you know, it can impact how your cardio, your cardiac function is, um, fluid shifts within your body. And so now you have these chips and now you're testing for a certain disease that is mimicked in microgravity. Like microgravity, um, when you culture these cells in microgravity, they, if it's a cardiomyocyte, the idea is that it may start replicating the same issues that crew might have with cardiac function after being in microgravity for an extended period of time. So it's to use the microgravity as a disease model of potentially aging or bone loss, muscle loss, cardiac dysfunction, you know, but those are all, all of those things, in my opinion, with regards to microgravity are just, they're on the cusp of being, um, you know, quantified and discovered how it really does impact these systems. And, and I, and so there's still more time is needed in order to make those discoveries. Yeah. I, it's, it's fascinating the changes, or I want to say not the changes, the tools that are going to be developed using space to improve it not only human, but species on earth done in a way through the leveraging of this capacity, this capability of being able to go into space. And I hadn't really, uh, I think we, it's, I think I talk more about or think more through these experimentations about humans, yet the same thing could be done to save a species on earth. Uh, that could be challenged with an environment or a disease or something that would not have been solved otherwise without space. Mm-hmm. You had brought up before we had started, uh, we started talking about the previous podcast was two ago where Alex Landecker did a fantastic job about reproduction and sexuality in space. And you started to comment about um, sperm cells. Mm-hmm. What were you going to, and I cut you short. So anybody who's listening in, we don't normally talk to the audience, but here, somebody's listening in. I'm bringing back a conversation where I brought, talked about Alex doing a phenomenal job and you started to share with me something about uh, sperm cells. What were you going to add? Well, I was just adding that, you know, we, we, I mean, the idea is if you can do reproduction in, 
one of the things is if you can reproduce in space, um, you know, how, how does the microgravity environment, you would need to know how it impacts the sperm cell. And we actually did an experiment with a scientist from Kansas State University where he was looking at um, the motility and viability of both bovine sperm and human sperm. It really was the first time, not really, it was the first time that um, a, an experiment of this type was done on station. And so what we did was we um, flew up syringes of frozen sperm, which the crew thawed. They put them in this um, bag that had uh, reagents in it that would essentially, um, and then the name of the reagent is escaping me at this moment in time, but what it did was it, it, it um, started, it basically kind of woke up the sperm and, and, and made them start moving like they should. And so yeah, then yeah. we had designed a slide that was contained that they could inject a sample of the sperm into. And then we video vi on a microscope, we video image the sperm moving. And, you know, and yes, there were differences um, between flight and ground, but the fact of the matter was the sperm did have, um, you know, potentially adequate motility and viability to, um, you know, re to, to have an organism reproduce in space. Hmm. So it was very fascinating to see, to see on uh, the large screen in our payload operations and command center. So, but it's, very it's, cool. It's like a little bit of a toy, you know, like, yeah. Hey, look, we're going to, we want to figure out if this will work mm -hmm. and the implications of it, because Alex had spoken highly about uh, the fact that if we don't solve sexuality and reproduction, we can't go anywhere. Right. Uh, that's the end. Uh, the, the game is over. And he didn't say it in that way, but that's the cause. If we cannot reproduce in space, if we cannot go someplace else and take care of uh, reproduction, it's not going to happen. And in the case of these experiments on the International Space Station or in space that you're doing, they also show, uh, I'm thinking more they do give us future possibilities. A lot of them though, are really what's, what is earth's possibilities mm -hmm. and fascinating. Cool. I really yeah. love it. Is, is there anything that we didn't discuss that I think that you think uh, you want to add? I think we covered a lot of ground. <laughs> <laughs> I, I never, I don't normally ask that because, but it just seemed like there's something I feel like I'm missing here that yes. I would like to ask that I can't think of at the moment. And I know I can always call you or anybody yeah. can call you with this was, this was great. Mm -hmm. uh, I personally, I, I was able to connect a lot of dots, even what you just said about the organ and a chip and now the th floating in three dimensional space and now the ability to be able to test now I get the reason for the organ and a chip and um, Project Moon Hut, we have many spinoffs are working on. One of them is a biotech business. Okay. And the, uh, by you sharing it the, in this way, I was like, oh, wow, now I get it. <laughs> now I get what the viability is. And now I understand how this could work. And I also see uh, non-international space station activity happening where vehicles will go to space, do the experimentation in space, not on the uh, International Space Station, and then return back to Earth, having done the experiment, no human interaction via robotics. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole nother, you know, manual versus automated robotics. You know, it, I mean, really, I feel like, like what we 
talked about today is just like kind of just the top of it, you know, just the tip of the iceberg, really. I mean, there's so much more to discuss and there's so much more like pros and cons to doing things in certain ways. And, and you're right, you know, in order to uh, improve throughput, you, you, we would have to automate and that has a whole set of issues in and of itself. And, and so there's just, so, this field is so broad and there's so much to discover and there's so much to talk about. I know I, I talked, we talked a lot about the spiders and, and, you know, and I talk about the spiders because, you know, a lot of people can relate to them and, and um, you know, it's, it, it helps demonstrate the problem, but, but as we talked about the organ on the chip and the cell culture and the rodent research, there's so much more to the life sciences research. It's not just spiders in space. It's all of these other types of research that really, you know, the end goal is really to try to um, do these experiments to somehow improve life on earth. It really is the point of these life science experiments. So I'm hoping we get there someday where we make some huge discoveries and, um, and we'll improve the planet. Well, and Project Moon Hut, we'll end it with this. Project Moon Hut's initiative is, as you heard in the beginning, is designing plans for us to live sustainably on the moon through the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem. And that's the development of the MIRTH ecosystem. But within that, you're going to, ex we, the first thing we have to do is accelerate Earth's capabilities. If you think you, you come from Earth, then you go to atmosphere and low Earth orbit, medium Earth orbit, high Earth orbit, you go to the moon. But to develop that, with and then those ideas, those innovations, that paradigm shifting, which we went, I went through today, mm -hmm. we turn them back on Earth to improve how we live on Earth for all species. So built right into what we're trying to accomplish, right? As Project Moon Hut is exactly what you just shared. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, yep. how do we improve the? In forty years, we'll have ten billion people on this planet. How do we ensure that we have a tomorrow that is a better I hate to say campfire than we have today. Mm -hmm. So absolutely, uh, this was fantastic. I, I really want to thank you uh, for taking the time. And I also want to thank all of you out there who are continually adding to the list of listeners. I know some of these go extremely long, uh, yet at the same time, the feedback that we're getting is they're real. I mean, I don't start off with any questions. This was really Stephanie taking the time. I think it was over a month or a month and a half to figure out what she wanted to share and help me help you understand. So I want you to take, thank you for taking the time to listen in. And I do hope that you learned something today that will make a difference in your life and the lives of others. Now, the Project Moon Hut Foundation, which I just said, established a box of the roof and the door on the moon the accelerated development of Earth and space, space, the ecosystem, and then take those endeavors, paradigm shifting thinking and the innovations and turn them back on Earth to improve how we live on Earth for all species. We're not just about the human species, but all species on this incredible planet that we live. So Stephanie, is there one best single way to get uh, to connect with you? Um, probably the best way is my email. And do you want me to give that yep, to you? You could if you like. It's, okay, I will. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm like, oh, where is it? I'll have to look it up. <laughs> it's, uh, that's, it's probably is the best way to get a hold of me. It's, it's countrym at colorado.edu. So it's C-O-U-N-T-R-Y-M at colorado.edu. And I too would like to connect with anybody who's interested. You can reach uh, me at david at moonhut.org. 
You can connect with us on Twitter at, at Project Moon Hunt or at Goldsmith is my personal. You can connect with us. We're on LinkedIn as Project Moon Hut Foundation. We're on Facebook. We do have an Instagram account. We really have been working on it. And we have a lot that is happening in the background at the present time. So there's going to be a lot more programs. There's a lot more activity. And I'm David Goldsmith. And thank you for listening.